soon going to be working as a lecturer at Cardiff Metropolitan University, but he's joining us today from the US. And he was awarded his PhD last summer from the University of Texas at Austin. And um, this presentation will show a continuation of that work. So without further ado, I shall uh, pass over to Alec and we'll see what he's got to tell us. Thanks, Alec. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for the, the introduction. Thank you uh, to the rest of you for joining. So a couple of uh, pieces of thanks first before uh, we get going. So obviously to Jeff uh, before he leaves us uh, for his own uh, playwriting festivities, uh, for inviting me to, to give this talk after linking up at BSSH last year. Obviously, thanks to the IHR for hosting these seminars, which I've been uh, grateful to have attended uh, in the past. And because this research in many ways uh, originates from my dissertation, I owe at least a certain amount of, of um, thanks to my dissertation committee for their support and what have you. Um, but perhaps more importantly, I owe thanks in this research to uh, my parents, not only for providing the location uh, from which I'm talking to all you all from, uh, but this research was uh, born of my hometown of Rochester, New York. And when you do a dissertation based on your hometown, you start to realize just how much your parents actually know about it. And as a doctoral student, you start to feel a little ignorant and say, oh, I've passed by these buildings. I've known these buildings. How was I unaware of them? And so to that element of sort of the living history, I very much uh, owe credit to, to my parents as a part of the development of this process. Um, and so a couple other notes before we dive into to the talk proper. Um, so why, why Rochester? Why do we choose uh, this topic? And how does it translate to my works and my research uh, in monograph form forward? And the, the initial answer which I think a lot of us academics struggled with over the last couple of years was I just wanted out of Texas. To be perfectly honest, the pandemic was wearing me down. I was frustrated. I wasn't around people who, uh, who I felt uh, were, um, I felt isolated. And so I came home and I came home to write. I wasn't entirely sure what I was going to write about. This was, a, this was very much sort of an in process. I vaguely knew I liked this idea of digital history. I actually was averse to the idea of local history, to be perfectly honest. I was more of a big idea kind of person. Um, and what resulted was research that was actually compelling, which I have to admit was something that was never a goal nor an expectation. I came home to finish this thing, get the floppy hat, pass the Viva, and move on. I had no interest in the, re in the research actually being interesting to people. I had no idea that, that uh, this work would ever result in uh, people like Jeff inviting me to, to come and talk at seminars like this. Uh, so in many ways, I'm quite humbled and perfectly honest, a little bit surprised. Um, and maybe by the end of this talk, you'll figure out, oh, maybe we shouldn't bring him back. Um, but I'm here now and I will do the best I can uh, with what I have. And... So what this research did was offer a pleasant surprise in terms of just what is available when one digs into microhistory and the connections and dynamic research that can evolve when you intersect 
the digital humanities and network studies in urban centers with micro histories of neighborhoods, streets, and buildings. So we're moving much more, even from the city being sort of an isolated standpoint, much more to the grain. So we're taking this a block by block approach in the research, um, which again is not a specialty of mine. It's not really even a desire of mine, but it has turned out to just fascinate me to no end. And this is where the research uh, continues to go. So before we get into this, I, I do need to put a bit of a spoiler alert in that there is not as much of the actual digital history as I would have wanted uh, a couple of months ago when Jeff originally asked me to speak. Uh, and the reason for that is over the last nine months since I completed my doctorate at the University of Texas at Austin, uh, I lost access to their GIS database, which contained all of my map resources. Um, uh, stemming from this presentation um, and, and the research. So what I have, and I have the link up uh, here, is all of the proprietary data in terms of what I looked at and uh, analyzed in terms of the geospatial coordinates and, and you know, some of the uh, manipulated maps. All of that is still mine, and, and I have it on an external hard drive. But the dynamic digital representations that were done on the University of Texas ArcGIS system, I no longer have access to. So I, I was hoping to bring them into the presentation. I couldn't do that. So unfortunately, we're left with some of the more static representations, which I hope uh, will be sufficient for, uh, for what we're trying to do today. Um, additionally, this has been compounded by the fact that you know getting a job in academia takes time, or so I kept being told. Um, and so temporary academic positions, while wonderful for the fact that I can pay my bills uh, and things like that, they're not particularly amenable to uh, long-term sustained research projects. Uh, so in, in many ways, I am thankful uh, to uh, the individuals at Cardiff Metropolitan University for seeing something in me to bring me over to Wales. Uh, from my end, I'm extraordinarily happy that this research will be able to continue uh, in, in a robust form. So hopefully, uh, perhaps within a year or so, this will be a much more fleshed out uh, digital history. But uh, I did wanna make a, a note about the limitations of sort of what I've been working through and where this research has, has hit roadblocks over the last nine months uh, before getting into the actual uh, content of things. So for all good, we'll move into the presentation proper. Right. So Norman Lyon, uh, an early 20th century historian of Rochester, New York, argued in the 1930s uh, that to understand immigration history at the local level, that it is important to understand the life and affairs of the immigrant groups themselves. And in this regard, local history needs to be understood as an ongoing process rather than a series of episodic events, uh, with the city represented as a dynamic, living, and evolving entity, which in many ways aligns it perfectly well for these more dynamic representations of digital history. And so he argues the peoples with distinct neighborhoods, cultural practices, and social relationships constantly interacted with the physical infrastructure. Uh, for this research, we're defining that as comprised of transportation networks, buildings, and green spaces. 
For this particular paper, we're going to look at buildings uh, in particular. And so to conduct a proper history of an urban center requires an examination of these intimate and intricate relationships. Later on, Stephen Rice, famous American urban sports historian, spoke to the role of sport and games played in this great urban dance when he wrote, quote, American sport in the industrial radial city was primarily a product of the constant blending of the elements of urbanization with each other and sport itself. And so why microhistory within all of this? Right? So it's desirability as a framework for the work that I'm putting together is perhaps best encapsulated in the words of a mid 19th century passage uh, detailing the urban tumult by Walt Whitman, where he wrote, quote, the sounds of English and foreign speech in the din of the streets packed with people multiplied the contrast already apparent in the material and the style of people's clothing and their being, unquote. Whitman's poetry sought to absorb the fantastic contradictions of the street scenes, which he registered on his walks through the city, but with the visual conflicts usually silence most observers. Microhistory as a framework allows scholars to parse through the brouhaha of scenes like the one he described to examine the most intimate and at times overlooked historical relationships. And at that point, that is a knock on myself, we quite often overlook the intimate for the larger, grander historical narratives. Later on, Melvin Adelman, another seminal urban sports scholar, lamented the ability of his contemporary historians to properly convey that dynamic when he claimed that they observed the city as a site rather than a process. He argued that the decision illuminated parallel developments between sport and the urban center, but lacked a, a causal relationship. And so this research and my further work takes up Adelman's charge. Though this research substitutes the general din of Whitman streets in favor for an arena, uh, the sentiment undergirding the analysis remains consistent. And then within microhistory, our lens of analysis is going to be transcultural exchange. Right? And transculturalism, the way that I'm defining it here, highlights interactions within and among immigrant communities rather than sort of large-scale migration patterns. Rice himself employed a transcultural perspective in sport and industrial America when he argued that American sport in that city was a product of the constant bleeding of the elements of urbanization within each other. Additional sport historians in the early 1990s wrote that, quote, not only did the influx of immigrants into the growing cities revitalize old practices and introduce others, but changing social, cultural, and economic patterns spawned a new sporting impulse. Those changes impacted the city's developments as much as the city Americanized the immigrants. And so it is that expression of cultural exchange, vis-a-vis -vis sport, and in particular the clubs in which we'll examine, and the urban spaces, both constructed and adapted, which remain the central focus of this work. And so how are we going to examine those phenomenon within the space of time that we have today? And so what I'm looking at in particular, right, that's one of my favorite quotes by Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, I'm trying to build on Rice's thesis 
through an examination of how basketball, bowling, specifically that of the Literary Athletic Club for the Polish, as well as uh, the Bonton Bowling League, of which the German and Irish clubs uh, participated in, how they provided a sense of identity and community for these ethnic groups in Rochester at the turn of the 20th century. Success in developing community, in particular for uh, the Polish example, will be addressed through the strengthening of inter-Polish communal bonds and the acceptance of Polish immigrants within the broader Rochester population vis-a-vis their athletic success on the basketball court. And to facilitate this study, the micro-historical approach obviously provides the framework for what we're doing, and bolstering that framework, analyzing the transcultural exchange, will be the addition of some quantitative uh, data sets, and, and we'll explore some maps, uh, which enhances the data-driven records and elevates the unexplored historical voices of these communities. The German and Irish case study, the bowling case study, expands on the foundation of another seminal voice in the field of urban history, though less sport history, Roy Rosenzweig. And attempts to compare urban industrial areas often fall short as they're often difficult to extrapolate uh, in a comparative lens. Rosenzweig addressed that concern in his, in his work on labor history of immigrant populations in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, and he claimed that the evidence from one medium-sized city, in my case, Rochester, can only resolve those questions in tentative ways. For example, there's, there's limited ways to extrapolate this, this concept. He did provide a caveat that if reliable data could be elicited from comparative cities, scholars could draw grander conclusions. And so in many ways, this larger research, this presentation here, attempts to apply Rosenzweig's invitation to an even more granular level. Rather than examine another medium-sized city, I will examine a city's dynamic within a singular facility. The bowling facility itself has no grand history, other than the fact that the facade of the building continues to stand today, no records of its historical predecessors are available. In many ways, that absence of history makes it the perfect location to examine. May's alleys, the bowling alley where these transcultural exchanges uh, occurred, uh, becomes the face of an unlikely facilitator of ethnic exchange. And it is there where we will begin our more detailed analysis. So the first case study to be examined here embraces microhistory by examining the cultural dynamics of a singular urban center within the cramped walls of one bowling alley at the turn of the century. Here, I will define intercultural dynamics through recorded instances of inter-ethnic exchange. For our purposes, uh, this will be termed transcultural interaction. I probably should have put definition of terms up here, but we can deal with that uh, later on. And so I measure transcultural interaction quantitatively in terms of bowling matches between various ethnicities and quantitatively in terms of newspaper reports of crowd and athlete behavior during and after the matches. The location of Mays is unique, not only for its absence of recorded history, but also for its lack of outward ethnic affiliation. In a neighborhood that was either staunchly German or passionately Irish throughout the 19th century, as it shifted from the 1850s to the 1870s to the turn, uh, the facility is simultaneously ambivalent and open. 
Thirdly, I'm not particularly concerned with the results of the matches. The concern is more on the evolution of the league and its quick coalescence around Mays as a facilitator of transcultural sport at the turn of the 20th century, as the neighborhood was shifting from a predominantly German neighborhood to one dominated by, uh, by an Irish community. For those interested, it's now an Italian community, and that shift occurred sometime in the post-World War II era, but had less to do with, with sport. And so to backtrack a little bit, so bowling tournaments were brought to the city by German immigrants roughly in the mid-19th century. Bowling clubs, which had existed in, in ad hoc form since the 1870s, began to formalize into proper leagues and teams by the 1880s. Most of these early bowling clubs were filled with German members supported by German businesses, churches, social outlets. Um, many clubs like the Alle Neun Bowling Club, the first to exist in Rochester, flirted in and out of the city directory, which makes it a little more difficult to track, um, to track their progress. Like many of the German clubs, it used its location at 321 North St. Paul Street as its base of operations. And so we can see it here, sort of the furthest right red line is North St. Paul, and that is where most of the German uh, clubs existed. By the mid-1890s, however, other bowling clubs started to appear in the city. So we have sort of the long rectangular section. That was when we started to see uh, some German clubs that were bordering on the Irish neighborhood. We started to see some Polish clubs uh, up along sort of the middle line, uh, just beneath the five. And so all of a sudden, these started coming together, overlapping in somewhat tenuous spaces. So by the late 1890s, the sport had gained a measure of transcendent popularity, which permeated the interests of young men and women, regardless of their ethnic background. In 1889, the city directory began publishing a separate section exclusively to keep track of the near endless expanse of newly formalized clubs. And a decade later, as many as 39 active, which is a substantially lower number of newspaper reports, uh, put that number somewhere in the range of 75 to 80, um, which just tells you, reinforces the fleeting nature of uh, these organizations. And so as they evolved, for the Irish, this meant that their clubs, often ignored in the city directories, uh, fall through the cracks of historical analysis. Now, the circle out to the far left of your screen, that's where Maze is located. And it's in the heart of what was Dutchtown, and has become, by the turn of the 20th century, an Irish stronghold uh, in Rochester, New York. During this period of time, from 1895 to 1905, there started to be a much more highly integrated form of bowling. In occasion, annual bowling contests consistently build matches as us Germans versus we Irish that typically took place in the midwinter holidays. Uh, and it often brought together representatives of the most frequently combative immigrant populations in Rochester, right? both of which established themselves as deeply American uh, by the turn of the 20th century. These games provided each of the respective communities to dress in outlandish costumes and parody their younger selves while fostering a, a sentiment of, of inter-ethnic relationships. And so by the start of the 1900-1901 season, 
the Bonton League, which had established itself as a non-ethnic league, had shifted by the 20th century, uh, boasted highly competitive sides from both the city's German and Irish neighborhoods, as well as a smattering of, of mixed ethnic teams. So we're going to pop back a little bit here. Uh, and so just as the clubs were ad hoc, so were the facilities. Lanes were often marked down in clubhouse basements, beer gardens, or saloons. Bowling in the 1880s primarily consisted of inter-association matches. Contested generally among club members, they were played for elaborate prizes as opposed to the pennants and cash prizes that would come to define league play in the 20th century. Some examples of these prizes pulled from the late 1880s uh, were often like a 56-piece tea set, um, a silver butter dish where these come from a Turner bowling tournament uh, in 1889. Right? And more often than not, these prizes and contests were less a reward for athletic excellence, but more a thanks for participating uh, sort of sentiment. And so by the mid-1890s, as Turner societies sort of coalesced into their own uh, sequestered leagues, what happened was uh, other ethnicities or non-Turner Germans began to form uh, external leagues. And so the Bonton League uh, revamped itself in 1900 at 363 Child Street, which again uh, is just to the uh, right of sort of the, the far left circle. So again, the assortment of course included five mixed ethnic teams Typically, the mixed ethnic teams were Irish. Uh, it's rare that you would have seen um, a Polish name or a Russian name uh, infiltrate those mixed leagues. Typically, they were, they were a mixture of, of Irish and German. Whether that was an instance of just trying to recruit a ringer to play for your team, I haven't quite parsed out yet, though that seems like a likely phenomenon since the mixed teams typically uh, ended up victorious. Um, and in particular, while Wicks and Mays operated as the main alley, and it was a non-ethnically affiliated alley, uh, other ethnically affiliated facilities uh, in a show of support for the overflow of the league uh, provided space. So McGuire's and Doolin's were popular Irish alleys sort of reserved within the Dutchtown neighborhood, uh, as well as Viedmans and Meinhardt's, which fell along uh, sort of the far right line up by the seven and sort of the traditional part of the old German neighborhood. And so as the 1900 season took off, it was in fact the Irish team that proved to be the dominant entity in the reborn Bonton League. So they had taken not only the German neighborhood and transformed it, but they had taken a quintessential German sport and had started to transform the dynamics of that as well. So as, as the neighborhood goes, so does the bowling institution. Right? Um, and this was critical because the Germans at this time had just blown people out of the water. They had uh, typically in their matches they had done with is referred to as Schneidering an opponent. Um, and that meant to run up a winning margin of triple digits uh, so that it was typically decided well within the first uh, couple of frames. It's a term derived from a Bavarian uh, card game in the mid-19th century. Um, but despite the long-standing German dominance, uh, it was the Irish who ended up 
uh, sort of asserting their uh, their presence by the turn of the century. And this was an all Irish team. There were no German ringers on it. This was a, a quintessential uh, Irish bowling league that, strangely enough, was not affiliated with any of the Hibernian associations, who by this point in time would have uh, assumed their own leagues. And much like the Turners, who wanted nothing to do with the Irish, the Hibernians, of course, wanted nothing to do with, uh, with their German neighbors. As one would imagine, that uh, not only between the players, but fans of these uh, respective teams also emerged or engaged in a fair amount of banter, right? Um, so there are claims of Irish supporters drowning out the crashing of the pins on these upper floors. Again, these are rather contained environments. Um, and as the, the season went along, what happened was the Irish, the Germans, and the Poles occupied four out of the top five positions in, uh, in the league standings. Uh, and so even weeknight games drew uh, rather significant crowds, right? And so we're, we're, these are constrained bowling alleys. Crowds numbering in the triple digits, two to 300 fans was not uncommon for a weeknight game. Uh, and the inter-ethnic games always drew higher crowds than the uh, mixed uh, ethnic teams. So anytime you had a, a, a fully Irish team play a fully German team, that was when the crowds were one at their largest and two at their, at their most raucous. Um, and so by the end of April 1901, what had happened is that the Irish back Cliftons had laid waste to the entirety of the league. Now, the top German side sat in a solid second position, though well back of the Irish, uh, and the Polish side sat just outside of the top three, running in a strong fourth. Right? There was one evening uh, late in the season where the best German, Irish, and Polish sides all lost. Uh, and in a need to explain this strange phenomenon, the local press ended up resorting to astrology um, and the fact that there was a full moon out. Uh, to explain this extraordinary off night that all of these ethnic teams would have failed. And actually, they all lost to mixed ethnic teams um, that night. A few weeks later, the clinching match was never really in doubt, uh, as, as the Cliftons capped their dominant season in a fairly dominant match. Of the following week, the awarding of the ceremonial victor's banner uh, was not the only incentive motivating the bowlers. There was also prize money. So instead of having sort of the elaborate sort of participation gifts of the Turners a decade earlier, what you had here was now sort of the first quasi-professional compensation for club bowling, although it wasn't termed that way. Um, and so at the time, the total purse for the league championship and these teams would have comprised about uh, eight to 10 people, depending on, on the day of the match. Uh, the total purse was $100 which is roughly the equivalent of about $3,000 today. And so, of course, split between those individuals, that certainly would have been equivalent to uh, a month or several months' wages, depending on the occupation. Now, for most of these individuals, Irish and German, they would have been in somewhat more managerial positions at this time. Uh, but $100 split eight ways for the Polish team would have been significant as they would have been relegated to the more uh, hard labor, uh, sort of manufacturing industrial jobs 
during this period of time. And with that, I think it's time that we start to look at the folds as they have a, a bit of a unique urban sport history uh, uh, when it comes to Rochester. So the Irish and the Germans are a little more traditional in how they ascended uh, and, and became acculturized into the United States. Uh, the Poles were isolated right from the start. They were put sort of in the marshlands um, and their facilities reflected their uh, harsh, isolated environment. And in many ways, it was their acceptance of those conditions and adoption of them that ended up endearing themselves to uh, the longstanding Rochester population. And so there's a great narrative about this, that uh, in 1904, uh, a visiting crowd exited the magnificent red brick, red brick gymnasium adjacent to the recently finished St. Stanislaus Church on the northern limits along Hudson Avenue in Rochester. The biting outdoor cold barely registered. Instead, the fans and players associated with the Hartford Playgrounders under 50 kilogram basketball team found the frozen snowy conditions in the city little better than those inside the church hall. The losing side's complaints about the gymnasium's freezing temperatures morphed into public demands for a rematch against the then unblemished Polish quintet from the Literary Athletic Club that called the court their home. No records exist of whether a rematch occurred, unfortunately. What the Hartford side's demand solidified, however, was a long-running trend of visiting teams trying in vain to find alternative explanations for the home court dominance and rapid ascendance of Polish basketball in Rochester. Now, the problem is this is that the Hartford complaints were accurate. Uh, that gym intentionally did not have heating facilities. Uh, it was too expensive to heat uh, uh, during practice times. And so the Polish quintet uh, across their lease, professional, semi-professional, and amateur, uh, practiced without heat. And so they felt that they could play without it. Uh, and there were no formalized rules about it. So the, the Hartford complaint was 100% valid. Um, but uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge in the records, uh, those complaints went nowhere. And so relegated to the northernmost edge of the city limits, the original neighborhood was little more than unfarmable marshland and seldom used dirt roads. You can see that uh, in the image on the left, the sort of red uh, outline block, that was the original Polish neighborhood. And of course, to, to the right, you get sort of a subset of of just how sort of blocked off it was. It is the most structured early neighborhood in Rochester. Uh, the Germans, the Irish, even the Eastern European Jews, it was a lot more nebulous. Uh, uh, Lithuanians, French Canadians, all sort of had these uh, sort of ephemeral spaces. Uh, but the Polish, when they, were, when they arrived in Rochester around the turn of the 20th century, were very much placed in a blocked off segment uh, to the north of the city. And so due to that relative geographic isolation, Rochester's Polish community developed more homogeneously and with less interaction than with other ethnic groups in the pre-World War I period. And so what occurred was that resulted in a rather linear form of recreational development rather than a lot of inter-ethnic, uh, intercultural uh, athletic development. And so while gymnastics clubs dominated what little time uh, was afforded to physical culture, 
Um, the second generation of Polish immigrants began to embrace traditional American sports, such as baseball, track and field, and of course, basketball. And by the start of the 19-teens, Polish squads were not only a substantial number of the participants, but they were frequently dominant in their pursuit of these athletic endeavors. And so that path in some ways stands in contrast to the way that sport historians have traditionally understood the Polish immigrants' relationship to sport. Often they are treated as having no sporting heritage upon arriving to the United States, and in many ways failing to establish themselves as ardent sportsmen. And if that was the case in larger cities such as New York and Chicago, then Rochester in many ways exists as an outlier. And the first generation of immigrants embraced the German style of gymnastics, of course, through Falcon associations. Uh, and even though they didn't appear until 1905, there were gymnastics displays of the Polish immigrants that date back to roughly the, the early 1880s. And so in addition to these continental exercises, the Polish community adopted traditional American sporting pastimes far quicker than the Germans or the Irish. This was also seen in Polish baseball players who by the early 20th century had matriculated to the major leagues, uh, were often managers, star players, and returned to Rochester and became the founders of the Literary Athletic Club among several others. And so what are we to think of the LAC? It was founded essentially as the recreational wing of St. Stanislaus, which was the first Polish Catholic church in, uh, in the city. And from 1913 to 1915, it saw unprecedented success. And not only were they winning, but they played in an emphatic, exciting, and entertaining way that really captured the understanding of, of evolving modern sport in Rochester in a way that no other ethnic group had yet done. And one of the things that's most significant about that for the Polish community is that by the time they started winning, they had transferred from the Polish boys, which is how the first literary athletic club championship team in 1913 was referred to. And by 1915, they were Rochester in the local press. And it was not only because of their success, which was initially demonized, obviously the complaints about the gym, uh, these weren't real Rochesterians, um, but the way that they played it was, it was this relentless style. Uh, it was a hard nosed kind of style. And for uh, a city that was in many ways, Rocha or the United States first boom town, they embraced this style. It was, it was organic. It was gritty a little bit. It was, it was everything that Rochester saw in themselves. They saw in this Polish club. And, and so that transformation, in many ways, eluded them away, eluded is the wrong word, but uh, transitioned them away from an inter-ethnic dynamic and just subsumed them into what was Rochester as a whole. And I think that that sort of distinguished the Polish evolution from that of the, of the Irish and Germans. Right. I'm going to skip over just some of the uh, of their actual results because I know we're getting up on the up on time here. Um, and there, of course, is the Literary Athletic Club basketball team from uh, 1915. Those were Rochester's boys at this time. 
Um, and of course, uh, St. Stanislaus Church, which still stands today in Rochester, up in the, uh, it's no longer the northernmost neighborhood, but it is uh, still a predominantly Polish area, actually, whereas the Germans and the Irish neighborhoods have transitioned out. Uh, the area along Hudson Avenue retains a lot of its Polish heritage um, in the form of restaurants, businesses, obviously uh, churches. And so I'd like to wrap this up, if I can, um, with uh, a quote from a prominent American Protestant theologian, which I know is sort of counter to it since we've sort of examined a lot of Catholic immigrant populations, but I, uh, Lyman Abbott, I think, sums it up so well. Uh, he wrote in 1891, uh, the city is not at all good or bad. Rather, it is humanity compressed, the best and worst combined in a strangely composite city. And I think that the study of the immigrant populations in Rochester is, is a crucial component of that. Um, and so ultimately, community space is imbued with traces of collective memory, that maintain the ethnic roots of sport and a social atmosphere. What were once rigidly ethnically divided neighborhoods have emerged as locations defined by a unified working class fellowship that transcends ethnic bonds. And that is how these neighborhoods exist today in Rochester as it has transitioned from a boom town to a post-industrial city, which is a term fraught with its own complications uh, that we can get to in the Q&A if we, if we so desire. Um, the neighborhoods today are primarily inhabited by sort of third wave immigrants, uh, Italians, African-Americans who populated the area in the wake of the Second World War. Dutchtown and the, the St. Paul neighborhoods in particular continue their legacy as transitional and transformative industrial locations. The facade belonging to the former Wick and Maze still stands today as a local uh, uh, convenience store, right? And so the tradition of close-knit networks that transcend ethnic delineations offer historians richer networks that can in turn provide crucial social and psychosocial support within a community and are ripe for our analysis. So like the corner store, uh, the former Wick and Maze and St. Stanislaus, right, the bowling lanes, and the frigid cold basketball floor of these, of these seminal sporting facilities offer historians a singular expression of that communal support, albeit perhaps for us, one that's born of competition. And so I'd like to end with sort of a where is this going? When I finally get over to Cardiff and I'm able to do this at the same time that all of you are, are listening into this, what is the goal? So the goal, I know Jeff left earlier, uh, but the goal essentially is, is to create a, uh, one, a monograph tracing the evolution of these specific facilities and the transcultural exchange that occurred within them. But more importantly, this is going to evolve into a much larger comparative digital data set that can be accessible uh, to, to historians, to lay people, and to bring this sort of uh, intimate local history into a global, comparative, accessible data. And so the, the working thesis behind this is that Rochester exists merely as the first data point in a larger understanding. And the goal of this is, is that sport and community development as witnessed through these industrial sports spaces as well as public parks evolved similarly across what we can 
perhaps uh, insufficiently described as post-industrial areas. Right? So the idea that places like Hamilton, Ontario, Rochester, New York, Essen, Strasbourg, Birmingham, have far more in common with their community and sport evolutions than any of them do with the respective metropole uh, within the national. And so to be able to, to dive into the granular and use the digital humanities to provide links between facilities and rosters and the uh, ethnic makeup of the neighborhoods and the, and the street dynamics, and yet compare those intimate locales with similar streets in these locations, I think allows us to embrace transculturalism, transatlantic histories in a really intimate way that, that we really haven't been able to, to dive into yet. Uh, and so as I finally get myself established and I'm able to have a, a much more definitive uh, digital uh, database, um, apparatus, I look forward to, to moving this forward in that direction. And uh, with that, I'll conclude, I'll turn it back over to Amanda. And hopefully we can have uh, uh, a decent spate of, of discussion. That was amazing. Thank you so much, Alec. Really fascinating stuff. So um, while other people are gathering their thoughts, um, so I'm really interested in this kind of micro history I, th I think it's it's so vital um and I'm, I'm just wondering how you how you foresee this um technique using this kind of digital mapping um going forward um I mean do you plan to um adapt or or develop new new processes or techniques um, with your work? That's a great question. Thank you very much for it. Um, at the moment, the short answer is no to this. Um, the, be, be, and the reason for that is, is uh, not particularly because I'm lazy, um, but it's that uh, these methods have simply not been used very much in uh, the specific subdiscipline of sport history. And so to me, the, the first goal of this methodologically is to see what traditional methods are applicable to, to this field. So, because um, you know, GIS has certainly been around well, for the better part of our half century. Um, it, it has sort of historical GIS has really been around in a, in a robust way, probably for about 25 years, the one of the first uh, really Groundbreaking works on it was published in 1997, if memory serves me correctly. Uh, but it really hasn't been used in sport at all. Uh, Connor Curran, uh, uh, Curran, can never remember how to pronounce his last name, uh, employed GIS with his uh, study of, of Dublin or Irish football clubs, uh, which is brilliant. Again, it's a great sort of micro uh, examination of, of those spaces and the, and the demographics that existed within them. Uh, I have a, a colleague of mine at the University of Texas who's using GIS to study um, uh, uh, lacrosse recruiting among middle school women in the, in the Pacific Northwest in the United States. 
Uh, so when you when you look up historical intersections of GIS in sport, uh, all of them are within the last 10 years. And so a lot of this is a matter, and a great deal of them have come out of stadium studies, which are more management and oriented than they are humanities oriented. Uh, so it's new. So the, the, the key for me is, is to find out, all right, to what extent is historical GIS actually applicable to micro history? Or are there, um, I'm going to blank on the term now. Uh, there's a really fascinating uh, digital networking phenomenon done, which of course you can deal with. Uh, um, it's often done in, in literary analyses, you know, just looking up terms and finding out where they intersect and, you know, do they show up in novels or letters or, you know, how do you have these spaces? Um, and to do that same thing, but with uh, rosters and how often they show up in the club meeting minutes and where are those meetings being held, that I think has a great deal to say. And you can start to see these really complex, intimate networks within maybe a quarter mile of space. Um, and so being able to have that dynamic network sort of imposed on top of uh, an understanding of the geography and topography of these neighborhoods at the time, uh, I think is crucial. And, and in that regard, I know I'm rambling a wee bit, um, but in that regard, I think the, the Polish case study here is, is most important because one of the things I, I didn't go into with the, with the polls that I probably should have um, is because they were placed so far out at the time in Rochester, uh, there, were, there were no transportation networks that existed. So the, the electric streetcars uh, didn't reach the neighborhoods, the, uh, the existing rail lines or, or sort of, uh, any sort of streets didn't reach there. And what you see is as their baseball and basketball teams get better over the course of the 19 teens, all of a sudden you start seeing light rail extensions like directly to the park, directly to the stadiums. Um, and so there's a, there's a fairly direct correlation between club and athletic success and infrastructure change uh, at the community level. The marshland starts to be developed. You start to see paved roads, things like that. Um, and so that's where I think GIS can be really helpful in, in breaking down some of this activity. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think it's so important. Um, so Katie has asked, um, what would the total population of the area covered have been? And how was the boundary of Rochester drawn? That's interesting, yeah. Ah, thank you, Katie. It's uh, a wonderful question. Let me go back to the map. Okay, so here's the map. This is Rochester circa 1899. Um, so uh, what you're seeing, Katie, is actually it's been cut off. <laughs> uh, the Polish neighborhood isn't even on the map uh, at this point. Um, but because most of the Polish population didn't, uh, didn't arrive in Rochester until really the turn of the century, it got left off of a lot of maps. Um, so the total population at this point, oh, I know it's in oh, my work. I'm trying to think about it now. Um, 
Katie, I want to ballpark it at about uh, 60-ish thousand here uh, with Germans probably running around 25,000, 20,000 Irish, about 25,000. By this point, the uh, sort of Anglo population had diminished a little bit, probably around 15,000. So it's probably about 75-ish thousand by this point. Um, a fairly robust city, um, equivalent um, in many ways. To, uh, it's a useless comparison to people in the UK, uh, but fairly similar to places like Pittsburgh, Cleveland, um, suburbs of Toronto uh, would have had cities of, of similar size. There's a lot of exchange athletically actually across the Canadian border, um, which I go into here. Um, and actually, there's a lot of there's a lot of Eastern European uh, Jewish populations where there's a lot of Canadian American transference during this period of time, which is a whole separate fascinating issue. Um, the to to answer the second part of your question, Katie, it was it was drawn to exclude the immigrants, uh, it, which is not a shocking answer, um, but uh, uh, so what. What happens is, so one, two, three are the initial neighborhoods of Rochester, not particularly shocking. Um, and that's, in, so that was Rochesterville when it was incorporated in 1827. And the reason for that is 11 and 20 were, uh, or 20 was a heavily German neighborhood, four was a heavily German neighborhood. And so the initial Anglo population of Rochester was like, no. And they're not part of the city. Um, if you look just north of two, that is where uh, there was a lot of mill work up there. So that was typically where if you came to Rochester uh, during this period of time, you, you came from New York City along the Erie Canal or you built the Erie Canal as an Irishman. Um, you lived in the slums just north of two. And so uh, four, 11, 20, and six were the next neighborhoods to expand and be incorporated within Rochester proper um, as sort of the Germans and the Irish began to assert their uh, socio-political presence in the city. Um, and so by the 1880s, 1890s, uh, you would have had the Germans moving to the north and east, so up uh, the way of 16 and seven, uh, and you would have had the Irish taking over uh, 20 and 19, as well as moving further to the southeast. Uh, so what you tended to see in Rochester was, so by the, by the turn of the 20th century, aside from the Poles, who are very much an outlier sitting from the northeast, um, new immigrant populations, Russians, Italians, uh, southeastern European Jewish populations, uh, they come in in Ward 2, and they typically start to then take over the north and west, so up near 15, um, as they become Americanized. And so there, there are very distinctive patterns of migration. The Jewish population actually tended down towards 12. Um, they, they tended to, um, in a recreational sense, they uh, uh, became some of the most famous arborists in Rochester. And so that is where a significant amount of the early 20th century parkland in the city 
is developed. And that was that was heavily influenced by uh, or expanded by uh, the uh, Eastern European Jewish population, which of course should be noted as distinct from the German Jewish population, which was not given its own distinct identity or considered Germans at the time. Um, so Katie, I'm not entirely sure if that if that was if that helped or if that was what you were looking for, but that's sort of how the boundary of the city uh, evolved over the course of the 20th century and very much followed parks and uh, athletic associations along the train routes that moved from the from the center to the periphery. Great. Um, so Richard has his hand up. Would you like to unmute yourself and ask a question? Yes. Um, thank you very much for that paper, Alec. I'm not really a sports historian. I'm more of an urban historian, and I'm really interested in um, microhistory and microgeography. So I wanted to ask you mostly about the sort of methods and sources that you've used, because I'm a bit worried that there's a kind of assumption that the Irish clubs or the Polish clubs are sort of fixed Irish. Do you actually know that the individual players who played, other than maybe having Irish names, do you know where they came from, how long they've been in the city? Can you link them to, say, the, the 1900 or the 1910 censuses or, or other city records like assessment records so that you can actually know who these guys were? Do you know what their occupations were? And even perhaps, do they all live in the same neighbourhood as the club is based? Or are they in other Irish neighbourhoods or other Polish bits of the city and they're actually sort of commuting across the city to play basketball or to go bowling? So is it possible to, to make those kinds of record linkages? That, that is a fascinating question, Richard. Thank you so much. Um, the short answer is, is yes, it's tricky. Uh, the Irish are the, are the easiest population to, to get that done, mainly because the Hibernians keep really good records. Right. Um, and the Hibernians are still around today in perhaps too much force in, in the city, um, at, at present. Um, and so their record keeping is really spectacular. Um, it, my access to to their stuff has been has been hit and miss, um, but I know that um, uh, certainly from the 1890s, the records that I can that I can glean from the uh, various Hibernian associations, um, you can do uh, you can make pretty compelling uh, cross reference lists between uh, members of the clubs, members of the team, members of the association. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting part with bowling is that, um, and this was not something I knew, um, at least when it comes to the one league that I examined, uh, it is, um, it's not quite a posh bowling league, but it's not working class either. So what you have are a lot of people who participate in these leagues. One, they own the bowling alley, uh, uh, Wick and Wicks and Mays bold for one of the mixed ethnic teams in the Bonton League um, and chaired the league. And it, by all indications, they were very closely tied to the mayor. Um, and 
and so on that front, it's, it's possible. There's a little bit of guesswork with occupation, although the city directories are pretty good in that regard, uh, in particular with the Germans and the Irish of their professions. Um, in a somewhat stereotypical um, understanding, uh, uh, outside of you know, like the brewers and whatever else for the Germans, there's a lot of technical innovation where they would have worked. So um, uh, uh, eyeglass factories, uh, Bausch and Lomb's from Rochester at this time. Um, the Irish, so the Germans tend to be in uh, what we might term now sort of like high tech industry, like high end manufacturing. Um, the Irish typically uh, more socially oriented uh, occupations at this time. Um, the bowlers in the league that I looked at tended to be more involved in city politics than some of maybe the, the more working class Irish leagues uh, where you would have had, had a much higher propensity of, of day laborers, um, which were still a pretty significant part of the Irish population at the time. Um, and those neighborhoods differed. To your point, Dennis. So where where Wicks and Mays is the the circle red, that was typically a much lower class Irish neighborhood. Um, sort of down where Thirteen is, uh, that's a much more affluent. As they start moving to the south and east by the 1900s, that's where you get a lot of the Irish sort of political money that comes into the city. Um, so let's see. So let me try to get make sure I got all of the all of it. So you you can for the associations that kept really good records. Obviously, it's easier to try to make some connections. It's really difficult with the Jewish population in Rochester. Um, it is really difficult. To, one, uh, there were just a lot of the the, the changing of the names uh, as they came into to New York City and moved to Rochester, and so there's a lot of the Jewish and Polish businesses are opened under their, like their authentic sort of old world name, but in the directory they're listed under their new world name and it makes it somewhat more difficult to ascertain, okay, who was this really? Um, for the Germans and the Irish in particular, they traveled a lot to games. Uh, if they weren't being held at Turner Hall or the Hibernian, main hall, they traveled. And a lot of the early rail networks were designed to transport Irish and German workers from their locations to their places of business or to their, what would become their sport facilities. Um, the Polish population uh, in sort of a very, very much encapsulated in this space. What ended up happening to the, to the Poles was people came to them more often than not, um, mainly because there just there, there wasn't the infrastructure early on to facilitate that. So the, the Polish population very much worked, lived, prayed, uh, uh, played all in this half mile uh, square block. Did I, did I cover every, every bit fine. of it? Yeah. Did I leave Thank something you. off the table, Richard? No, that's fine. Thank you. Um, that was but great. it is. Um, um, so we, we're kind of out of time, but I just think that um, 
I've lost it now. Um, Jasper has asked a really in interesting question. If you could just address it really quickly. Um, yes. He says, thanks for introducing your fascinating research. What advice do you have for others to help guard against losing access to their GIS data? Maybe if you knew the answer to that, <laughs> it would be a different <laughs> one. <laughs> um, Jasper, what I will say, and I'm, I'm hoping this, this will work, um, if you guys can see this, um, can you guys all see the, the um, Excel spreadsheet? Keep yeah. the geospatial data. <laughs> because if you have the geospatial data and you have the notes about the stuff, it is, I'm hoping, it is easier to transfer it from database to database. Um, so all of the, you know, lat longitude, you know, so we have the Germans, the Irish, the Polish, the Jewish, and also, you know, parks and grounds, neighborhoods. Um, here's a master sheet of all of the clubs and the city directories that existed. Um, and uh, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit, but save the geospatial data. And if you can do that, you have the demographic information. Uh, it's easier, you know, you're still going to have to go through the process of drawing it out and, and whatever else, but at least you won't have to go through that, the, pro the really granular process of identifying uh, where each of the buildings are. And if you can get the actual uh, Latin longitude, especially with histor history stuff, uh, or you know stuff that's over 75 years old, because street names and place names will change constantly. Um, and so having the actual geographic location um, is just really helpful. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, always do not do not learn everything. my lesson the hard save way. Everything, never lose anything. Um, so that's that's the end. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Thank you so much, Alec. Uh, just would like to say in a fortnight's time, uh, we have Katie Holmes, who's been with us. Um, speaking to us and that's a hybrid meeting so if you can make it to London do um to the IHR if not just join us on zoom we'd, we'd love to see you again um and it just remains for me to say thank you so much again to Dr Alex Alec Hurley and um I'm sure you can contact him if you want to ask him anything else um thank you so much and uh you're welcome to leave the meeting thank you